the other dictatorship, okay, the dictatorship which actually does not is not being discussed, okay, and no one is actually outraged about it except for the handful of, you know, meaningful leftists, okay, but no one's outraged about it, Out, and we do live in uh, in circumstances of dictatorship, dictatorship of corporations, so corporate dictatorship, uh, you know, or, or dictatorship uh, sometimes, you know, that is uh, exercised like corp- dicta- dictatorial measures are being applied by uh, you know intelligence services or uh you know all kinds of stuff right everything's happened but this is the reality of uh of the capitalist class society where you have the dictatorship of one class over the other class and it's just it, it it's not that visible because the the, the class the capitalist class the managerial class the you know the bourgeois class to use the you know the classical uh, marxist language okay they they own this they own the countries they own the states they own the economy they own the judiciary they own the media they own the army they own the police and so on and so forth right the list is long so uh this is something that i think uh, I mean, the fact that people do not really, mm, uh, uh, the, the fact that this dictatorship is not part of the public discourse is also speaks to the weakness of the left, okay? Because for the last 30 years, I can't really see any major leftist, uh, you know, media outlet or propaganda center circle, whatever, to come up and, and, and try to inject this sort of uh, discourse into the public sphere, okay? So this is also, to a certain extent, our failure. And of course, like, I'm not trying to blame the left for the existence of capitalism right now. But what I'm trying to, send, uh, to say is that there are problems with authoritarian rule and with authoritarian regime which aren't so easily detectable because they are not being discussed by the mainstream and uh, and i think that bulgaria and i want to go to vladimir now bulgaria is an excellent example because defi- despite the fact that our authoritarianism there has been quite overt actually for anyone who has been there or for anyone who has actually had a closer look at how things are in bulgaria and how there is no rule of law how there's widespread corruption how boyko borisov has been, uh, uh, you know, basically something like an absolute uh, 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 leader, okay? I mean, absolutist, I would, uh, I guess the, uh, the proper term is. Absolutist leader, because he basically was able to uh, manually, manually manage every institution of the country at every level through his party, which was organized all around him, which wasn't really a normal party, and it has never been. It was something like a, a secret service, secret service slash police club. That's what it was, really. And he was the, the, the you know, the commander of that club, and 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 then you know it it, it kind of. Uh, uh, kind of grew into the uh, institutional structure of the country and and, and basically turned uh, from turned from this uh, police club into a, a kind of corporation that was policing everything and in particular was uh, acting actively uh, was acting against people and processes and organizations that would even remotely threaten Okay, the oligarchic model that the oligarchic model that is Boyko Borisov and his oligarchic friends managing everything and owning the economy and so on and so forth. And you know, so we, we've seen that, but no one really paid much of an attention. And I think Vladimir, you've already explained it to a certain extent by by pointing out that he was uh, that Boyko Borisov was very uh, had a very cozy relationship, and the authoritarian leader had a very cozy relationship with uh, the democratic leader of Germany, Angela Merkel, plus with 
uh, uh, foreign investors. Okay, so you can see foreign investors in Angela Merkel. If things are okay, if they are okay with a certain type of authoritarianism, that's fine. If it suits their goals, okay, that, that that's fine. That then you know we don't write about it uh, on the first uh, on the front page of Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung or whatever other mainstream media. But when we don't like some, someone like Lukashenko, for example, then oh my God, our heart, you know, my heart goes out. Our hearts go out, right? Because like uh, there there is a protest movement. Uh, 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 crashed uh, last year in in Belarus. But what's actually, you know, substantially speaking, what's the difference, okay, between a, a movement crushed, okay, and a movement that's been crushed in a softer manner, like in Bulgaria? Because at pretty much the same time in Bulgaria and in Belarus, we had very strong uh, uh, and I would say even well organized, uh, you know, protests, okay, massive protests on an everyday basis or, or almost everyday basis. And in Bulgaria, they lasted for almost half a year, okay? Half a year, masses of people every day on the streets and, you know, crickets in the media, right? And what's actually the difference between that authoritarianism and this and the other authoritarianism when both of the movements have achieved pretty much nothing with the exception, and here uh, I want to go to you, Vladimir, that some organizations, okay, some of them new, some of them pretending to be new, political organizations did emerge around uh, the protests in uh, Bulgaria, and they are now part of the parliamentary game. But I think it has to be pointed out that had there not been the American blessing for that, it would have never happened. It's not because the authoritarianism of Boyko Borisov was better, okay? It's because the Americans withdrew in the, well, in the last moment, I was going to say, but I don't think it was the last moment, really. It was just their choice of, a, of the right moment. Okay, they withdrew their support for Boyko Borisov. And they started looking for a new uh, viceroy on the ground. And, and uh, had it not been for this, had it not been for the allowance from the side of the American embassy, I think, okay, it would have never happened, or at least not to such an extent, where we have a party that claims to have been created, I think quite falsely, by the way, but that's a different story, claims to have been created uh, uh, on the basis of those protests last year, winning the parliamentary elections, okay? So, uh, please, uh, like, tell us, why do you think this authoritarianism was? Because, you know, in my opinion, it's like, you know, people voted, and that's, of course, one of the aspects why they voted for Boyko Borisov and this authoritarian appeal that he had. There are many reasons for that. But one reason, definitely, uh, uh, in, a, in a kind of historical perspective, is that before 1989, people have obviously lived, have lived, a, you know, better lives than after 1989. And everyone is going to tell you this in Bulgaria, with the exception of the very, of a small group of absolutely anti-communist, uh, un, like obsessively anti-communist uh, right-wingers in Sofia and maybe other uh, urban centers. But everyone understands, and this is a consensus in Bulgaria, that the transition failed, okay, totally, and has failed the people and, 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 and failed morally, economically, ethically, politically, you know, in, any, in every aspect, really. Okay, but, but then, you know, I think it's logical for the people to make such a choice because they've lived a better life under authoritarian uh, under the authoritarian regime before 1989, and then they ha they had this allegedly democratic uh, uh, experiment, okay, imposed on them, uh, which was really uh, I mean the democracy was just the decorum because 
what was introduced was capitalism, not so much democracy. So, so they've had this, and, and the results of that were, are, you know, they have been terrible. I mean, terrible. People don't really don't, don't realize, uh, particularly the American audience and, and the Canadian audience, the North American audience that uh, you know is uh, uh, the. <clears throat> Uh, that the analysis appeals to uh, mostly, I, I don't think they even have the slightest idea what kind of civilizational downgrade and destitution we have been through in Bulgaria. And, you know, now people, you know, vote again for someone with an authoritarian appeal because it's just, you know, kind of logical. I don't support that, okay? But it is logical, isn't it? What's your take? You spoke a long time, so I have plenty of issues to tackle now. Uh, well, first of all, uh, one reason for uh, this overly personal regime of Borisov to stand for a long time, obviously, is the international one, as we spoke. And uh, maybe it's the fact, exactly the fact that he came in politics through the internal ministry, and he has this impression of somebody who can instill discipline, uh, at least on a very physical level, let's say even on the street, if you wish. Uh, maybe that... Uh, has been important for his partners in the West uh, because uh, I guess the West needs its uh, flows of good investment funds, etc., to travel freely through this land, which is Bulgaria. So the territory is important and it is important to be stable. But also I think it's the economical reason that uh, has been important re explanation for this long-standing uh, uh, rule of Borisov. And here I need to expand a little bit more the issue because um, uh, we have uh, something which also in Romania it's present. Uh, maybe it's uh, like that in an, a number of countries in the region. Maybe it's, it's something which is called clientelist uh, connections or um, uh, networks. So, you know, there have been a lot of cases when, for example, uh, workers in a large uh, factory or a firm, uh, they are put by their employer to protest because the interests of the firm are violated. Uh, and um, there are uh, a number of situations in which people just, they, they perceive their economic interest in a very physical direct way is related to the interest of their patron. Maybe it could be the boss of the firm, it could be the boss of the party, which they uh, their firm is aligned to. So, you know, it is a, uh, it, we speak about authoritarianism. Well, that is exactly a feudal structure of society. So, you know, if you want, if I'm a Western, I don't know if I come from the West, I want to change something in Bulgaria, I have to make an effort to change this model, uh, you know, the social model, to have more people who are um, economically independent or who are critically in their uh, approaches to the society, uh, who don't, who are not tempted to give in their uh, freedom or um, uh, trust uh, easily. And uh, uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why uh, the regime of Borisov lasted for so long. And why did it start to unravel? Well, I guess the reason is again economical, um, especially on the internal part of the, uh, you know, the national, the Bulgarian part of the explanation. 
because uh, it got strengthened a lot uh, under Trump. And uh, as a result of that, a, a limited number of firms started winning a large number of public procurement um, for any kind of services like highways or other services which in which um, state state money are channeled to the private sector. So first of all, a number of businesses felt out fell out of the game. You know, they couldn't they it, it turned out that you can run your business only as long as you have the support of a certain party which is in government. And if you are not from, you don't have support among those parties, your business is likely, very likely to go into bankruptcy. And another reason, uh, at least as far as I uh, got some impressions from people in Sofia when there were protests in the last uh, summer, one year ago, um, it looked like even those allies, which are traditionally pro-European, uh, related to the NGO sector, um, at least there is such an opinion that they started feeling they're getting, they're losing their ground in comparison to the GERP allies in uh, achieve, in obtaining certain European funds. So you know, I, I guess if we just have to think economically, so if when power under capitalism power tends to be concentrated uh, and accumulated, so when power gets so concentrated in one man or one group, the other groups which become alienated, they also look for their survival. So they uh, they are tempted to make some radical choices. And I need to remind you uh, and our readers as well, if they have followed politics here, that uh, those people who are, th those parties who are protesting now, especially Democratic Bulgaria, they used to be part of the uh, second government of Borisov. So they were protesting against the third one, but their ministers were part of the second one. And uh, you know, Bulgaria is an oligarchy. So that is another element of our talk on authoritarianism and uh, the low um, voter turnout in the last elections is another, I think it is at least partially explained by the fact that people realize you don't vote for even for ideas. There are no visions. Even the protesters didn't propose a vision for reformation and modernization of society. They only speak about that, but they don't have something tangible with uh, goals, with uh, indicators, what is success, etc. So people realize that uh, you vote for a certain economic interest. You are you have freedom to choose between, uh, if I simplify or uh, uh, make, make it very in a stupid way, you, you can choose between pro-Western or pro-Eastern oligarchs, or maybe not like that, but you know, you, you can choose between good oligarchs and bad oligarchs. Uh, you, but in any case, you can't choose a party, especially the left, if we need to discuss the left, that might be important. Uh, there is no a part, no party which supports uh, the interest of uh, workers or uh, some social movements. Bulgaria is known for lack of grassroots movements. Romania, for example, has movements for uh, housing, uh, right to city or right to housing. It has also other movements related to feminism. And uh, even though Bulgaria also might have a little bit of those tendencies, but you know, grassroots activism in Bulgaria is, uh, in my view, inexistent. Yeah. So, you know, all these factors and maybe also other aspects explain 
why people don't feel empowered in Bulgaria. And uh, I think those protests of the last year, they had the potential uh, to, to carve out some way, progressive way for the future. But in, eventually they, they didn't do it just because what we have are games of those who have economic power. You know, we have corporations and we have oligarchs. So that is also a dilemma before, I think, the whole region of Central and Eastern Europe we have either some kind of, if I simplify again, pro-Western or um, corporatist capitalism, or some kind of capitalism with each Asian values, as they say, which is one of the oligarchs. And uh, to finish, uh, the left uh, in these countries, no matter how small or weak it is, I think it has, a, you ask what is the way, I think you ask should we trust the EU, but also what is the way for the people. Uh, the, the left has this potential to be an international internationalist current. So I guess the left from our region has the potential to transcend borders and maybe this uh, cross-border activity, which even we are practicing now, can empower a number of people in our countries and maybe it could bring some change yeah well uh sure Th there are some tendencies in eastern europe that are you know that look at least pretty hopeful and uh and perhaps something's going to come out of it uh but uh over the overall situation seems pretty bleak uh by and large and and uh you know Still, I, I want to I want to stick to the to the question whether uh, you know we really had a choice and whether it, whether this this authoritarianism that uh, that we can observe in Bulgaria, in Poland, in Hungary, in Russia, in Belarus, uh, you know whether this is uh, really something uh, like the the West would like everyone to see it some some kind of pathological incident. That something happened, and and that's very bad. And of course, I don't. Again, I don't like authoritarian tendencies. But you know, I don't think that this was an incident. On the contrary, I see this uh, as a natural development of everything that has been piling up over the last, say, 30, 40 years, okay? Because, and, and Malgojata, I want to go to you now. Again, let's speak about uh, the, uh, let's speak about history for, uh, for a short while. Because, you know, the, uh, the break of the 90s, okay, no one really uh, was, uh, no one was programming, okay, the transition in a way that let's reform those countries, let's help them democratize, let's uh, help them, you know, develop a different sort of political culture, let's, uh, you know, show them some good practices from the West, like how they can enter into some kind of substantial dialogue, like the powers that be with, you know, with, with civic organizations, and so on and so forth, how, you know, uh, uh, whatever small business initiative can work in favor of, you know, uh, the economy, and so on, and so forth, right? No, they didn't want to do that, okay? So they were not really interested in democracy. What they were interested in is capitalism. And what they were interested in, and, and you can see that perf the perfect lab clean example of this was the annexation of East Germany by by the West, by West Germany and by the West, uh, you know, in general, right? Because that's, that's exactly what happened, right? I mean, you can see that in... Uh, you can see that very, very clearly. They just took over. They closed all, down all their factories. Like, 
basically the entire industrial competition, okay, that used to exist uh, until uh, early 90s in the GDR, that is uh, East Germany, okay? And that that's pretty much what happened throughout Eastern Europe. So everything that, that occurred was basically, uh, uh, well, again, by and large, okay, was theft, privatization, primitive accumulation of capital, if you like, okay, to, again, use a classical Marxist jargon, okay, uh, uh, no democracy, really, because, I mean, come on, look at what happened in Romania in the beginning of the 90s, look at what happened in Bulgaria in the beginning of the 90s with all the political killings and mafia emergence and, and so on and so forth. Like, where was the democracy? The democracy was nowhere. It was chaos, it was poverty, it was it, it was a, a general uh, a disaster, okay? That, that's what it was. I mean, things got have gotten worse, not better. Okay, at le- uh, I'm talking at least now, uh, I mean, I'm talking about the beginning of the 90s or the first half of the 90s at least. I mean, you, ca- you can't argue really if, if you want to stay rational that things have immediately gotten better. In some cases, like in, in case of Poland, for example, certain things have gotten better and, and, and the, the Polish uh, you know, authorities did manage to build on whatever uh, you know, has not been destroyed throughout the 90s. And, 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 and the Polish economy in comparison with the Romanian or with the Bulgarian or with the whatever, Moldovan, if you like, is obviously... Uh, uh, much more successful, okay, case. But, uh, you know, what I'm trying to say is that authoritarianism has been with or inside embedded in the system of transition and and the restoration of capitalism since the very beginning. So there is no surprise, really, for a rationally thinking person, okay, uh, that now it's just getting uh, a political representation. And of course, you know, those from the West that were so happy and clapping hands about how we're, you know, departing from communism and, and you know, uh, the lack of democracy and, and, and authoritarian regime, those that were clapping their hands at, at that, now are dissatisfied because the process got a little bit out of control. And, you know, they, it, they, 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 they now have to deal with a monster, okay, that they have basically groomed themselves. And again, you know, Mogujata, you and I, we have been on the left for a long time now, okay? And we have a, the, the rec, we have a solid record of warning people or trying to warn people uh, via all kinds of independent outlets like, guys, this is not going the way you feel it's going to go. This is not going the way, like Fukuyama put it in his nonsensical book, uh, The End of History. No, no, it's not really going to be, you know, a, a liberal democracy and, 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 and the capitalist economy thriving, thriving all over the place. On the contrary, it's going to end up in some kind of weird... Uh, 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 and, you know, Kaczynski is weird, even by our Eastern European standards, okay? So uh, uh, in some kind of weird authoritarian right-wing experiment. And this is what is playing itself out right now before our very eyes. So, uh, you know, do you agree with this historical perspective? I mean, is this, has authoritarianism been with us since the very beginning of the capitalist restoration? That is, you know, uh, uh, it is a different authoritarianism than the one we've had before 1989, but it's still authoritarianism. And, uh, you know, we did have some pauses, some breaks, and, and some democratic mechanisms did play themselves out. But in the final aftermath, this is the end of that road. 
Okay, uh, well, again, you talked a lot. There are a lot of points I could refer to, but uh, let me just stick to one thing, at, the, at least for a moment. Uh, in the, you mentioned Francis Fukuyama's, the end of uh, Francis Fukuyama's prophecy that now has been revoked even by its own author who admitted to be totally wrong. And uh, honestly, I don't know what did the Western architects of the transformation think as of the future of the Eastern Europe. I don't know if they imagined that we will, we Eastern Europeans are going to set some political parties and then they are just going to, well, go um, and then they are going to have some political rivalry and we will just uh, live in this in this democratic system and so on. I'm not, I don't know what, well, how did they imagine that, but I know that in the very beginning of the 90s in Poland there happened one thing in the party system that in fact uh, paved the way for future uh, right-wing authoritarianism and I think that was the denial for the left, for the social democrats to be an equal political force in Poland. It was, Of course it was not decreed as the Communist Party in Poland itself it was not banned by but from the very beginning of the 90s we heard that there is no place for the left in the new democratic system that the left had already the chance to rule Poland and it failed and now uh, as one of the journal and uh, as one of the journalists put it the left in Poland can do less than other parties and in this, in this moment, when uh, left was virtually pushed to the margins of the political life and it did not have courage in itself to stand to this discourse, we were actually put onto the way of the neoliberal hege hegemony in the discourse that had to end up with some kind of reaction. And so here I agree with you absolutely then. We, uh, given the fact that we castrated our political debate at the beginning, we had to end up with a guy like Kaczynski, who just invented, well, who just who just chose some elements of Polish political traditions and proposed his conservative, Catholic, paternalist, uh, pseudo-social uh, care system, which actually could work much better, hadn't he, uh, had he stressed uh, much more the social issues than the conservative part of his program. But, uh, and what I I think that uh, this may refer to many other countries in the region as well, to the Baltic states in particular, when the left wing was also told at the very beginning of the transformation that uh, it is not welcome in the country, that uh, the, the future belongs to national forces, the conservative forces, and uh, the social democrats are, are, well, are guilty of everything. And no one protested. No one protested in the, in the West. Indeed, indeed. Nobody saw nothing wrong about that. And even worse, the West helped to strengthen this ultra-anti-communist discourse, uh, making us leftists to be permanently sorry for what Stalin did and for everything bad that happened in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. And... Um, I uh, recently we had uh, elections in Moldova and I had the opportunity to talk to a left-wing commentator from Moldova who told me that one of the tragedies of political life in his country was that immediately after the so-called democratic transformations, the left-wingers were pushed to the corner and uh, they were... Uh, 
the political uh, scene was modeled uh, in this way that the left must be pro-Russian, must be uh, pro must uh, say must be sorry for Stalin, and uh, at the same time it can't really propose any anti-capitalist measures because we already tried anti-capitalism and it did not work. And I think that. It is the same mechanism, as I said, the same mechanism took place in many other countries in the region. And given the fact that the people were deprived of this part of political debate, people were uh, deprived of possibility uh, of thinking how to make capitalism better, even in, 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 even in, in a limited way. Well, it had to end up with somebody from the right wing who appears as a good leader of the nation, who cares of the nation, and who b will build his own institutions, uh, and, uh, and, and well, who will who will deprive people of democratic liberties, perhaps, but will take care of people and not make them fall into capitalist instability. So, yes, in, uh, in this context, I absolutely agree that the roots of authoritarianism date back to the so-called democratic transformation. And said this, I, I don't want to say that this must have happened because there is no, nothing like must in history, but it was highly probable from the very beginning. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question of political culture was uh, raised by Vladimir earlier. And I want to, uh, uh, I'd like to speak about that for a little while. I'd like you, Maria, particularly to speak uh, about that for, uh, for a while, because, you know, what is authoritarianism, essentially? Uh, you know, of course, like when you when you look at the mainstream Western media, you're going to go like, oh, authoritarianism is terrible because it goes after LGBT community or uh, like in Poland or Hungary or it goes after whatever women's rights like in Poland or uh, whatever political opponents like in Russia, allegedly, and so on and so forth. Right. Like this, this is how authoritarianism is presented. But essentially, authoritarianism is the kind of political culture where, you know, there are the masters. Okay, or there is the master and, and I don't know, his acolytes. And then there are those people somewhere, you know, those people. It, 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 it would have been great if those people had, had you know, if we, didn't, if we didn't need those people, if the masters didn't need those people, because they would have had a state and they would have been able to, you know, do anything they like. Okay, and now when the people are there, they kind of have to consider it and they have to, you know, enter into some kind of dialogue or at least consider their existence. They have to make life bearable for them. And it's all such a heavy burden. Okay, and of course they don't want to listen to them because those people they have no idea. And this, by the way, is not exclusive to uh, to Eastern Europe. This is something that has been part of the Western culture since the emergence and the domination of the managerial class and managerialism as the philosophy. Like there are those who know and those who have no idea, and those who know need to, you know, like technocracy. Uh, I'd like you to elaborate on that, please, because you know much much more about that, that uh, uh, those notions than. I do, but, but but please, you know, uh, speak about the question of the culture and the political culture, and I think it also speaks to again uh, something that Vladimir has taken up earlier: uh, the, the notion of alienation. Because when it comes to political culture, many leftists, also not only right wing people, but many leftists, tend to say that oh, people are stupid. Our people, you know, they are not uh, they are not mature enough uh, in order to understand and exercise democracy, which is pure bullshit. I mean, I totally, I, I absolutely reject this kind of uh, uh, notion. It's not a matter of maturity, and it's 
not a matter of, of, of you know, uh, how educated you are. It's, it's about being given a chance, okay? And about being, uh, 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 about being allowed to be part of some process. And trust me, like, uh, if, if people are given a chance to have a say in something that is of vital interest, for them, they will exercise their democratic right if it's there and if it's organized in a way that it can be uh, actually, uh, you know, achieved. And now, you know, we have people because of poverty, because of all those things that we've been talking about here uh, on this program, you know, they are so alienated that they are, they don't care anymore. Like, how do you expect people with the rate of poverty that you just explained a couple of minutes ago to, you know, to, to, to care about democratic rights, democratic whatever values, European values, if you like. You know, I, I even remember one Bulgarian journalist joking uh, on the radio on air that European values would like someone to define it for us because I don't know, do you eat that with your breakfast or I don't know, on, for lunch or maybe, you know, in the evening, what, what do you do with European values? And it, it was, you know, it's a joke. Okay. But it's a, it's a fair question. What do you do with this when you're hungry? Okay. So, uh, uh so obviously the political culture has to be low. Please go ahead. Well, of course it's low. And I told you, I quoted and a lot of the right wingers are quite surprised to find out that I quote for Isaiah Berlin, that one of their, you know, well, stars, a person that they praise and admire when he said that given political civil liberties to poor people uh, is to mock them. Now, authoritarianism is usually a form of government that rejects pluralism and uh, wants to keep power, the status quo, and usually it does not like the separation of powers and the rule of law. Now, in 1964, there was this uh, four, uh, you know, elements. Uh, it was defined in a famous book, four elements that characterize uh, authoritarianism. And it is, as I said, limited uh, political pluralism. The political legitimacy is based on emotions and creating emotional hype. Uh, and also um, uh, maximum uh, political mobilization and ill-defined executive powers. And um, now I would like to say that, as I told you, uh, we witness right now overt authoritarianism, like the ones that uh, we see in Kaczynski, where he wants to be perceived as this leader that is a paternalistic figure that is going to lead the nation to a brighter future, to a safer future. And uh, you have the covert, so to speak, or more subtle forms of authoritarianism that have not been explored so far, as you said, because the left-wing forces were so weak and for the most time were preoccupied with imitating debates from uh, Western Europe and the United States on identitarian issues. Now, the problem with authoritarianism, as you said, especially uh, in uh, Romania, was that it is very difficult to have this democratic culture when all your life, you know, you have a boss. And this is a peculiar thing that we replace somehow Ceausescu and the centralization of centralized authoritarian regime with an undemocratic workplace where you have your little Ceausescu there, you know, your boss. Uh, and 
we are working, we were working together for a number of years and you were sometimes the witness of me being so afraid, you know, in my workplace. And I'm a university professor. Just imagine what happens when you go down on the social ladder. And for me, some of my colleagues think I'm crazy just for being here with you because all that fear that was, you know, somehow um, centralized and it was uh, this power and authoritarianism was exercised from one center, just moved in the workplace. And how do you build a political culture that would not tend to authoritarianism when for the most part of your life you live in an undemocratic environment where you have a very small elite telling everyone else what to do and actually retaliating against those who oppose you know that elite how do you build a democratic you know culture when you don't have an association where you can go and you can you know gather money and fight for your rights and express you know your problems as a worker as a woman that probably was harassed and so on and so forth how do you build a, a political uh, you know culture when Again, the economic environment is so profoundly undemocratic and unfair and exclusive because we are talking about inclusivity and we are taking this poisonous apple that the corporations are giving us when while draping, you know, their buildings into the rainbow flag. But at the same time, I would ask, do you have representatives at, of the workers in your managerial boards? Because, you know, it is so easy to be diverse, but at the same time maintain this very strict and uh, hierarchy in the, in the workplace. And especially in Romania, since we had, this is very perverse, I mean, Slavoj Žižek would have something to say about this because he's so prone and he likes so much psychoanalysis, but in a way, Ceausescu survived in the next generations of a uh, generation of managers that we had in Romania that thought that, you know, that power that they had over their workers was so... Uh, sweet to them and they liked it so much and um, it is true unfortunately that you don't see the kind of abuses uh, in large corporations that you see in small firms in Romania and that has to do also with the deregulation of the 90s and the fact that we did not have we did not have a, a Marshall plan, you know, to help us overcome and to help us democratize. They did not help us. Democracy was supposed to, you know, just blossom like a flower here. And unfortunately, it did not happen. It was, you know, a transformation from this centralized authoritarianism to decentralized uh, uh, authoritarianism. Right. And this is the situation right now. Okay, so we're uh, running rapidly out of time. I would like to invite you, Vladimir, now to perhaps uh, continue this topic on, uh, you know, of political culture, because I think, uh, and, and I'm not a specialist in political culture, political marketing, and, and political communication, that kind of stuff, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, my response as a left-wing uh, commentator, activist to uh, some extent, is that, look, if we want to overcome this, those political 
political slash cultural problems, then there's only one way to do that. The first thing what you uh, what you mentioned is we gotta have a vision. We gotta have something which is not gonna just have this technocratic appeal that we're gonna things make things better for you because we've got better mechanisms of power, which we do have better uh, offer in, in this respect, of course, as the left. But still, like we gotta have a vision which is gonna have an emotional appeal, which is gonna in, you know inspire people, and then you can start overcoming alienation by mobilizing people because this is how you i i guess like i mean please uh, all of you correct me if you feel that i'm wrong but this is how you overcome alienation by gathering people by creating a sense of community by creating a sense of a common goal of a common good of, of, of you know better future this is how you overcome alienation right and no one cared really so far in bulgaria uh, or you know in other eastern european countries uh, for that matter to overcome that okay uh so uh people are large by and large alienated and and they are you know in this they, they live under this terrible in this in those terrible conditions that maria just described perfectly uh you, you know uh the, the the dictatorship in the workplace the the, the dictatorship uh you know outside the workplace and, and so on and so forth and do you think that this is the way to go that that like if we want to have grassroots movement in bulgaria then we have to start with some kind of active minority that will start to mobilize people but you know not just by by, by saying that we're better uh, or, or that we're going to i don't know take away you know do away with the mafia or or i don't know fix the judicial system and stuff like that but that they are going to appeal to something more general and that they could you know create an inspiration well, um, there have been studies, uh, even back in the 70s, I think, Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lush is one of those studies about certain evolutions in societies and in people under West, uh, in Western world. And um, th those evolutions have been somehow transferred to us as we also learn to live in capitalism and our institutions become uh, homogenized in this sense but also it's peculiar in our region i think i don't know about western europe but uh, uh, we have a social um, form which is called mafia and uh, it's not only those uh, criminals who um, somehow uh, corrupt society and uh, do some nasty things uh, between themselves but uh, you know in a way in when you grow in bulgaria or maybe in other countries in the regions as well you grow when you are able to form a mafia around you <laughs> you know it's a social model and you and this model is peculiar i i think it has something to do with um, either with uh, orthodox uh, countries or with muslim countries i'm, I'm not I, i'm not so uh, I don't know so many countries, but I think it has something to do with uh, this specific part of the world, as um, people care about their mafia because they live through it. Uh, maybe mafia is not the, the the most the exact word. Maybe it's an in-group. It's a better word for English speakers. But you know, it is a group in which you dissolve and you live through it, and you don't care about others as long as they don't threaten you or they don't present some. If, if they present some interest, some resource which you can use for your mafia, you, then you care about them. But, you know, on normal terms, this model of in-groups, it destroys solidarity. You know, mm -hmm. people 
my impression, at least from Catholic countries, no matter how much you cry in, Pol- in Poland from authoritarianism, uh, Catholic Church, in my view, has certain uh, value for community, at least, uh, I think, to a greater extent, while in here in our part of the world, there is a value more for the in-group. You know, and that's why we have the oligarchies as well. So, you know, this is a very, if you ask me how to change that, uh, it, it is very difficult, of course, uh, but I think uh, some people always are unable to follow the model of the mainstream, and I think uh, these people have to have certain uh, places where they can gather and organize. And also, I think our media, in a way, has uh, a function as an alternative media or as a place for some people beyond the consensus in these societies in which we are present and active. Uh, such in- initiatives, they can empower people. And uh, as I mentioned, at least that's my own experience, cross-border communication, um, it has a great potential to empower because, you know, maybe in your own country, in your province, let's say, or you, where you live in your country, you don't find this energy or um, uh, resources or experience which can give you feeling, uh, as you know, to overcome alienation. But uh, when you open to the world, uh, and in our case, we open to the region which we live in, you can find this energy, these experiences beyond uh, your uh, gloomy uh, town or place. And uh, I guess uh, uh, life is a struggle. You know, we, we can't resolve by magic all those problems, but it is important that people who are carrying certain change, like progressive change, it is important that they they have their places or spots where they can flourish. And uh, that at least that's my solution for the time being. Uh, okay, uh, and uh, before I go to you, uh, Malgujata, for the uh, last uh, question here that I have, for, uh, but but uh, I want to because I saw Maria, you were nodding your head when when Vladimir uh, spoke about uh, the kind of uh, connection or alleged connection between the Orthodox car- culture and and the kind of authoritarian uh, ideas or, or concepts that that that. Uh, well, apparently, uh, this culture uh, retains. Okay, so uh, I, I want you to uh, please, perhaps, you know, comment on that or elaborate uh, on that for, but briefly, okay, because we got to finish. Well, very briefly, I would just say that for some time in Romania, the charity done by the Catholic Church here was more substantial than the whole charity missions that the uh, Orthodox Romanian Church was involved in. And that should tell you something. That should tell you something, not about how greedy the Romanian Orthodox Church is, and, but it should tell you something about, you know, exactly as Vladimir said, the um, cultural element. I mean, I hate when people say, oh, you like authoritarianism and everything can be explained through your culture. No, it is a mixture of of, uh, factors. But of course, uh, I think Vladimir is right and our culture plays a very important part. This type of Orthodox church that is... uh, 
playing with the power and also resolving everything through informal channels, as I told you on previous shows, that the Romanian Orthodox Church is not a democratic militant one, like, like the neo-Protestant uh, ones in the United States, the first thing. And... Um, the, the second thing, it has to do also with the cultural background because Romania was among the last to abolish um, this type of servitude of the peasants, you know, in Europe. So this type of um, servitude of the peasants was the longest here in our country. And the communist era found us with almost uh, 70% of the people illiterate and most of them living in rural areas in conditions that you would not imagine. So these are the factors that we have to take into account when discussing, you know, the flourishment of this authoritarianisms here. Right. Uh, and the last uh, two or maybe three maximum minutes of the program, I want to devote to Russia, because I, I intentionally didn't mention that before, because I was just afraid we're just, you know, we're going to spend half of the, <laughs> of the time of the program discussing this and all the controversies around that country. So I left it for the, uh, you know, for the, for the last two or three minutes. Uh, and Mulgujar, I want to go to you with this and a very brief and, and very uh, kind of uh, uh, quick question. Okay. Like, there are some legitimate complaints, okay, about, you know, authoritarian tendencies in Russia and, and, and so on, and, and, you know, the political uh, uh, arrangement there not being entirely, uh, you know, democratic or constitutionally democratic as, as, as it's understood in the West. But then, you know, again... Has anyone given Russia a chance? Because what happened after the uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, dismantlement of the Soviet Union was again a civilizational disaster at every level. Okay, in Russia, I mean, this was something that has no precedent. Okay, in the history of the Russian uh, of the Russian state. Okay, and 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 then you know, I wonder if. Uh, if, if, if the Russians were to prevent somehow the complete fall apart and disintegration of the Russian state and, and, and Brzezinski's wet dream playing itself out, that is the split of the Russian Federation into five or six uh, different countries, three of which would, uh, would probably uh, 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 resemble Afghanistan today and, and, and two other would resemble Moldova. Uh, okay, so... Like, how, how do you think it was possible without authoritarian measures? Because I just don't quite, I, frankly, I don't see how, how it, it, it would have been possible. Of course, I mean, my, my favorite scenario would be, uh, you know, a socialist revolution and, and you know, and, and, and better socialism than the one that, uh, that we've had before 1989. But this was not really the alternative at the break of the century, okay? And and uh, I, I don't I don't want to come across as someone who uh, comes up with excuses for authoritarianism. But let's look at facts logically, okay? And let's apply basic logic to basic facts. Please go ahead, Malgojata. Do you uh, do you agree with this uh, approach, or or uh, or do you find it uh, I don't know over the top? Well, if I am just to say what I want to say in two minutes, then I would say that 
if you allow an oligarchic, uh, oligarchic system to grow and if you allow a population of more than 140 millions to, ex to experience extreme poverty. And indeed, what happened in Russia in the 90s, that was absolute uh, civilizational disaster and the growth of extreme inequalities. Then you have basically two possible scenarios for the future. One is that somebody in all this chaos wants to take the lead in the country and inevitably it uh, descends into authoritarianism. And the second is what you, is basically what Brzezinski envisaged for Russia. So uh, the split in more entities. Uh, actually, it would be, both scenarios were possible for a while, and the fact that Russia ended up with an authoritarian regime was quite, uh, well, was a quite an expected outcome of the events. So really, there is nothing, nothing to be, uh, nothing to be um, particularly surprised with. Uh, well, uh, and as far as uh, West, the West and Russia is concerned, I would like to give one more historical example. I already talked today about 1917, the Russian Revolution and the radical attempts to build a democratic society. Let me remind you what happened after that revolution when it was really yet unclear what what kind of political system could come out of the chaos. What did the Western countries do? Did they support the, the, the new government or at least look at, the, look at it with a kind of interest? No, they supported the reaction. They supported the whites. So the people who wanted to impose dictat dictatorship in Russia, uh, the dictatorship that could have been much more bloody than uh, anything that the, that the Tsars did. So well, the West never really cared about democracy in Russia and really never wished anything good for Russian people, nor allowed them to choose the system and build it relatively in a relatively positive conditions. And so, well, if, if in the end the Russians vote for a leader who offers them some kind of stability and tells them that they will be able to stand up, to any kind of intervention. Well, I am not really uh, surprised by the fact that they trust him. What will he do now when the memory of the 90s is kind of fading away, particularly in the minds of the younger generation? That is an open question, and this is a big challenge to the Russian government. But again, this is a, a topic for another discussion. Right. And on that note, I want to thank our guests in Bulgaria, Romania and Poland. Uh, thank you so much for the analysis, for the insightful remarks. And I want to thank our viewers. And I want to invite everybody to check out uh, theanalysis.news and to click on the donate button there and to uh, check out the barricade online and to go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the barricade and to check out the uh, video, uh, the YouTube channels of the respective platforms. Uh, thanks so much again and stay healthy and keep fighting. And we're going to see each other hopefully sometime soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye.